0: Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we have a conversation with a woman who runs a podcast about having anxiety. She suffered from having a guilt complex, loneliness, and panic attacks all while being a solo world traveler. We talk about life as an expat during COVID nineteen and the challenges of being a small travel business owner during a pandemic. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Anxiety in a Foreign Country. My guest today is Alison Green. She's a travel blogger, a small business owner, she's a writer, and a podcast host of I'm Anxious About This. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, thanks so much for having me.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about where you come from?
1: Sure, so I'm originally from the Bay Area, uh, close to San Francisco, and when I was 17, I moved to New York, went to school at New York University, spent nine years living there, and five years working as a public school teacher and with all the time that i had off from school i really started to fall in love with traveling and i would find some place to go almost every other weekend and i would do the craziest things to be able to go somewhere to travel like i would one night i took a 2:30 a.m. flight back from puerto rico straight to school pretty much, and just rolled off the airplane and went to work. So I was really addicted to travel. It was not enough, even with um, all the vacation days that you get. Uh, So I decided I wanted to take a year off. And then after I made that decision, I sort of decided, why does it have to be a year? And I sort of looked into uh, travel blogging as an actual uh, job, as an actual business, And I found that it was actually more viable than I had initially thought. And I learned that it's kind of a business like any other. You can learn the ropes. You can learn how to do it. And so I sort of started off travel blogging knowing from the outset that I wanted to turn it into a business, whereas many people start a blog more as like a hobby, and then they figure out what to do with it. So my road was a little bit like the inverse. I was just like, oh, I want to do that forever. How can I do that? (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's pretty That's an awesome way of doing it, actually. You make my wife and I jealous because we, uh, we wanted to travel, 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 and then we had two kids, and we had to put that up hold and hold for a little... I love my kids, first and foremost, just so we uh, get that out into mm-hmm. the open, and I wouldn't trade them for the world, but you know, you get kids and then things happen and then you don't get to move and then you don't get to travel and you don't get to do what you kind of want. Everything always steps into it. So that was uh, an awesome opportunity I think you took.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it definitely becomes a lot more challenging to travel when you have a family, friends of mine who are starting families, they're sort of seeing, oh, this thing that I used to be able to do is so much harder now. And it's still possible. There are so many people who do it, but not without a lot more work and planning and struggle. It's already quite challenging. Just travel, like challenges, or travel is wonderful, but it is also a challenge. I think even for the best of us, um, you're always thinking. Your brain is so engaged; it can be tiring. So when you're doing that, but then you're also in charge of making sure your little ones don't like run off or die or something. Then it becomes a lot more stressful.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would kind of ruin your trip just a little. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. So, you, you, um, what'd you teach in school?
1: Uh, so I taught special education, so all subjects to a group of mostly sixth to eighth graders with high functioning autism. So, um, but I worked with, um, kind of a variety of disabilities, uh, as well, such so as like emotional disturbances and, um, intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities. And so, but it was just sort of generalist, all subjects, classroom teacher.
0: What got you interested? I mean, I know you said that you've always wanted to travel. When did you first know that you wanted to travel the world?
1: Um, I was really interested in traveling just always as a kid, mostly just like about maps and stuff. I was always had my head in a book, staring at a map, like practicing the spelling of, you know, bizarre country names to me. And I would just like, uh, look at these places like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and they just enchanted me. I was like, that sounds like a magical place. And I was just always kind of obsessed with the idea of like another world. Like some of my favorite movies were like Aladdin, Jungle Book, just things that were all about discovering different parts of the world. So I think there was a part of me as a young child that was like very obsessed with getting to know the world and seeing outside of my little bubble. And um, I carried that out kind of throughout my childhood. But then really when I studied abroad in my junior year of college in the Czech Republic, that was when I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. This is so cool. And I really loved being in Europe and being able to just take a train and suddenly all the signs are in another language and all the money is different. And like growing up in California where you can drive 10 hours and not leave the state, you're like, wow, this is incredible. So I just really enjoyed the contrast and even with the challenges of it, I still found it really, really enjoyable. And it was something that made me prioritize travel as part of my life from then on out, even if I didn't know quite then that I wanted to make it my life and business.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, um, it's kind of an amazing journey to get where you're at, but you're happy with what you're doing. I can see it in your face when you talk (laughs) about it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really fun. It's a, you know, there are pros and cons to everything. And, uh, You know, this pandemic certainly makes everything uh, come into relief in a strange way. So, you know, you definitely miss some of the other things of, you know, a more normal life, so to speak, about, you know, like missing routine, missing family, things like that. I can definitely have quite a few challenges as well. Stability isn't really a strong suit either. But um, I look at all the trade offs, and I'm really happy with uh, the choices I've made and what I've what I've decided to do with my life, even though it's taken a couple of zigzags.
0: <laughs> you live in the Czech Republic now.
1: Um, actually, I live in Sofia in Bulgaria.
0: Sofia, Bulgaria. I heard that's beautiful. Actually,
1: it's actually a really beautiful city. It has um has its charms for sure. It's a little bit gritty a little rough around the edges but it also is so close to nature that it's really nice to like get out and go explore there's a mountain pretty much in the city like periphery you can just take a bus and you're on a 2600 meter i guess like like 8,000 feet mountain in um mm-hmm. just like an hour you can just be on top of a mountain and i really enjoy that it's just a nice way to get away without actually getting away from the city
0: That's pretty cool. Why would you pick Bulgaria?
1: Um, I didn't really pick Bulgaria. It kind of just picked me. I was sort of just bouncing around um, Europe, avoiding the Schengen zone restrictions. And I realized I could be in Bulgaria for... it didn't count against my Schengen visa days, so I could spend some time out like in other parts of Europe and then spend some time in Bulgaria. And so I decided to make Bulgaria sort of like my halftime base in between my travels because it's really, really hard to run a business when you're like traveling all the time as well. You need sort of times of rest and work and times of travel and research and exploration and play. And so Sofia kind of became my home base between all of that. But then I met my now husband and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm staying in Bulgaria for a little while longer. Um, He's actually not Bulgarian. He's from Brazil by way of Italy. So weird people end up in Sofia. You never know.
0: <laughs> Aren't we all from literally everybody comes from other places to, mm-hmm. to kind of meet that it's just fate. That's where it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. What kind of... The visa that you're talking about just help my, my listeners understand and me to understand actually mm-hmm. what kind of visa was that?
1: So uh, a Schengen visa is basically what every American um, receives upon entering the uh, Schengen zone, which is like a block of European countries, um, so like Spain, Italy, Germany, uh, Sweden. It's an agreement between like twenty five different countries that allow for open borders between um, the different countries. So that's great in theory, and it's great for most travelers who are traveling around just a little bit at a time. But if you're a long term kind of nomad, you can't spend three months in Spain and then three months in Italy. That's just that's overstaying. You can only spend three months within the zone itself, and then you need to leave the zone for three months. And it's like, it's not exactly like that. Like you can kind of um, split your time up like one month in, one month out, but it's basically out of every six months, you can only spend uh, three months in the Schengen zone. So if you're a full-time traveler you're old, and you're based in Europe and you don't have EU citizenship, you're always looking for those countries that um, don't have, uh, that aren't part of the Schengen zone yet. And so, uh, lots of Balkan countries have kind of become little digital nomad hideouts because you can sort of live in Europe year round, um, without needing, uh, a full on visa.
0: That's pretty cool. Very interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. So you, um, do you also run a small travel business of your own, correct?
1: Yes. I run, uh, two now three travel businesses, um <laughs> I have a, a very uh big tendency of starting new projects. Um so I run uh, Eternal Arrival, which is the blog that I first started when I was traveling. And that's sort of just global travel with a little bit of a focus right now on outdoor travel and um it- Uh, different ways to get outside and keep your sanity during this pandemic. So I have a lot of um, local American writers writing for me about adventures in their cities as well to sort of keep um, the content on that fresh and interesting for my readers since um, my readers are mostly in the US. And then I also have Sophia Adventures, which is a blog about Bulgaria and the Balkans and then I started a new project called California Crossroads, which is a blog about California, my home state, and just focusing again on like uh, regional travel um, since people can't really go international at the moment.
0: I was going to ask you, how does the COVID-19 issues and the restrictions that were put mm-hmm. on travel from the United States to Europe affected you?
1: Oh, it was, it was devastating. Um, it was really, really hard. Um, basically, you know, we're talking going from five figure months to three figure months, um, just to give you a scale of the loss. So um, it was pretty significant. And it's still a pretty significant loss. I'm sort of starting to claw my way back by sort of following the trends of what's popular. Um, you know, people aren't really um doing too much, but they are staying in Airbnbs close to them, or they're, um, you know, taking a road trip in their home state. They're doing something. There's still some movement. Not everyone is just hunkering down, maybe for better or worse. Um, so just sort of trying to find the small opportunity that exists at the moment because international travel for Americans is just not happening. So um, all my international content is, almost dead just a couple british and irish people reading it and that's about it right now and maybe a couple dreaming americans but um nothing's getting booked unfortunately which is a big um yeah big revenue loss yeah no problem take your time
0: with that kind of a travel your travel when you say the small travel business do you help people to book that travel or do you just provide them with the resources for them to be able to achieve their own travel
1: Mostly the latter. I do some itinerary planning for the Balkans, but it's a really small portion of my business. And mostly I help people to plan travel through free travel guides, which they can find on Google and Pinterest. And I uh, make revenue from ads and affiliate sales. So if someone books a hotel through a link that I recommend, or purchases a suitcase that I recommend, then I can make an income off of that. So it's all very small commissions, but you know, over over the scale of like a lot of um, monthly viewers, you can create a good um, good living that way. Actually, that adds
0: up. Yeah, all of it adds up. Are the there the same travel restrictions between countries in the European Union as there are here in the United States?
1: It's kind of complicated right now in the European Union. Technically, there's some, there's mostly open borders, but it's changing all the time. Countries are deciding to just close off their borders kind of randomly sometimes. Like Hungary just closed their borders and just everyone pretty much, I think. And a lot of a lot of places, you need from Bulgaria, you need a PCR test, um, a negative PCR test within seventy-two hours to go to quite a few places, because our case numbers are not incredibly high, but they're higher than some other countries. So there's just a lot of moving parts, and I'm actually trying to plan um, my first trip since the pandemic began to um, see a friend in Germany, and I'm already like having to contact the embassy to be like, what. Is, you know, what are the restrictions? Like, is there a PCR test? Is there going to be an issue because I'm an American traveling on with a, a residency card? So it's just very difficult to plan any yeah. sort of travel or movement, which is so frustrating when that's been your life. So I can
0: imagine. Yeah, that's yeah. very, things have changed drastically. And unfortunately, yes. yeah. I I, I kind of follow, I follow that religiously we watched the, obviously i'm a news hound and so i kind of watch it from all aspects and perspectives and it seems like we really don't know when this is going to actually come to an end because yeah. even here where they started opening things back up again because the numbers had come down and i'm sure you've heard this but now mm-hmm. all of a sudden the numbers are shooting back up again yeah. because they opened yeah so it's, you know very bizarre see. very bizarre Yeah. It's a real disease, but it's not a disease. It's a a virus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just a real public health, like quagmire, you know, what do you do? How do you, and how do you get by? How do you not be so restrictive that you lose the optional buy-in that people need to do to have a a safe society? Because, you know, if you restrict people too much, people are going to rebel at a certain point, but if you don't restrict people at all, people are just going to think everything's fine. There needs to be like a a middle ground. And I think um, here they've been, you know, fairly decent about it, but there were definitely some some missteps in the beginning. Like, you know, they blocked off all the parks and it's like, but parks are the best place to be able to go, you know? And so everyone would just walk around the park, like all close to each other because instead of having a park, they now have like a three foot wide sidewalk. And I was just like, The Uh, logic of this, yeah, and they like, they blocked off the mountain, there was like a police checkpoint on the mountain, so you couldn't go up and get any fresh air. So um, it was just frustrating, because a lot of the things that were the safest activities you could do at the beginning, they blocked those all off. And that I understand why they did, because we didn't have enough data about how the virus actually transmits. So people were trying to do things to be cautious, and keep like public safety in mind. But it's such a hard balancing act, because you need to give people a reason worth living, you know, you need to give them permission to do things that are valuable to them, things that they want to do, you know, so you have to really navigate this balance, because this is not a short term issue. This is a long, a long term issue that we probably won't see resolution on until the middle of next year, if we're lucky, honestly. So
0: hopefully, hopefully that will come about next year.
1: Yeah, I'm hopeful as well.
0: So you were a solo traveler for like how many years?
1: Mm, I traveled solo from 2016 to about 2018, like fully solo all the time. And, um, since then I still travel solo quite a bit. Uh, I, sh- I would say about half of my trips are solo because my, uh, husband doesn't have as much, uh, vacation time as I do. So I'll still travel without him occasionally. So yeah, I'm still consider myself a sometimes solo travel traveler, but um, for two what years I of, was traveling totally solo.
0: What kind of what kind of uh, challenges does a solo traveler have?
1: Uh, I would say just like loneliness and just social awkwardness. Um, I'm someone who really struggles with social anxiety. Um, especially with strangers it really can be super hard for me to um, strike up a conversation with someone in person and uh, I get very overwhelmed with like inserting myself into like a, a larger group dynamic so if I was um staying at a hostel or something it would be really difficult for me to like join a conversation and make you know friends at least temporarily I'm pretty good at entertaining myself so boredom wasn't really an issue. But mostly, just the loneliness that you get, and also just when you have a bad day, there's no one to really help you. And so the hardest days were always the days where like I would get sick or just have a really bad anxiety day or anxiety attacks. Those would be the days that were just like, "I don't want to do this anymore. It's not worth it
0: <laughs> so do you um what what's it like to experience like different foods and cultures on a routine basis. I mean, that's got to be pretty Mm -hmm. cool.
1: Oh, yeah. For me, that's my favorite part. I'm not a picky eater at all. Um, As long as there are no bananas on my plate, I'm a happy camper. I'll eat almost anything. And um, so I really enjoy eating food from all around the world. And I don't mind... Um, you know, not fully knowing exactly what it is I'm eating or having, you know, menus that I totally understand. So that's always been totally fine. Um, Culture can definitely be more of a challenge sometimes because it's interesting, but at the same time, it can be frustrating with when your cultural expectations don't necessarily align with other people's. And it doesn't mean that people are rude, just means people are different. And so um, traveling around Eastern Europe, there are a lot of cultural differences that i started to notice um things like in albania people just stare they just like they notice an outsider and they just stare and like in any other country that would be like the rudest thing ever but in albania that's just kind of how people are it's just like they just stare that's just what they do and it's not shameful and um Other things, you know, people, just the way people interact is like a little more formal, a little colder than I'm used to in California. But, you know, that's just a different way of life. It doesn't mean people are actually less friendly. It's just a different way people express, you know, friendliness and a different idea people have about what it is to be, you know, courteous. Like I think here people prefer not like taking up too much of people's time. Whereas like in California, people might really enjoy like having that small talk. In Bulgaria it's more polite to just like have an efficient transaction, you know?
0: Like we're starting now, we'll be done in five minutes and mm-hmm. out yep. of here.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: <laughs> Do you see a lot of difference between the Eastern, Eastern Europe and Western Europe?
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, to me, Europe is Europe and, Europe in general is more different to America than like Western Europe is different to Eastern Europe, if that makes sense. But there's definitely differences. Like, um, you can definitely see a lot more, a lot more is still just in development in Eastern Europe. There's been, uh, lots of just like a history of like wars and occupation, genocide in some parts of Eastern Europe that just have really, kind of held um, this part of the world back from growing at the same rate as Western Europe. And so a lot of the scars of like ethnic infighting and violence and nationalism and all the fun-isms have definitely made it hard for places like Bulgaria and other places in the Balkan region to really realize their potential compared to the rest of the EU countries. But it's interesting because you can't really... You can't really compare all Eastern European countries with the same brush because you take a country like the Czech Republic, Czech Republic is miles ahead of where Bulgaria is. Like Czech Republic, when I lived there in uh, 2009, was still miles ahead of where Bulgaria is in 2020. And Estonia, I was in Estonia maybe two years ago, and it was part of the USSR. And now it feels like you're in... Sweden, it's, or Norway. It's very, very progressive, very digital, very startup. It's like kind of like a Silicon Valley of Europe. So it's definitely not like a one-size-fits-all model, but the Balkans definitely are kind of the slowest to move forward I've seen.
0: You know, it's really, that must be uh, kind of cool to be able to watch the development of some of those countries to evolve the way they've evolved mm-hmm. into yeah. something... But more positive and more progressive.
1: Yeah, it is a really cool time. It's a frustrating time at the same time because you have to wait through it. Um, But it is also really cool because you see the changes happening and young people seem pretty galvanized and interested in changing the future in a way that I think young people maybe don't feel as galvanized in other places.
0: Well, I've, I've got some self-serving questions. Sure, answer. go for it. <laughs> Just, what What's it like to touch history? I mean, actual history, because some of these places, I'm sure that you've been, you've stood mm-hmm. where somebody stood a couple thousand years ago.
1: Yeah, and, and
0: touched things that have been there for for eons. So what's it like? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Share cool. that. One.
1: It's pretty cool, like, and it just blows my mind. Again, as a Californian, where like the oldest building I ever saw was like a California mission that's like two hundred years old. To be to take the subway in Sofia in the main subway station, there are all these Roman ruins from uh, the the ancient city of Certica, which is uh, Sofia was built upon. So you're just like you get off the subway and you're just in this like mass of you know partially uncovered ruins, and that's pretty cool. And there's definitely been some places that I've been where I was just like, wow, like this was a really important place in history. Like I got to stand exactly where um, Franz Ferdinand was shot in Bosnia and sort of set off all of the events of World War One. And I was like, whoa, this is a crazy place to be. And um, learning about the historical side of things is always one of the more interesting parts of traveling for me.
0: Yeah, that would be cool. I think that... Um, well, my wife and I finally get to come to Europe. We were planning a trip to Europe this year, actually. We we're supposed to be there. Our anniversary's tomorrow.
1: Oh, happy so, anniversary.
0: Thank you. 30, 31 years.
1: Wow. That's I, impressive.
0: I gave away part of my age. <laughs> see, that's the advantage of a podcast. They can't mm-hmm. see how <laughs> wise I am. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll say wise. I like wise. Yeah, we, uh, we were supposed to... um we uh, had planned a trip to France and, uh, you know, France and then taking a train up in and around, you know, any other places that we could visit, either mm-hmm. England or, and, uh, we obviously had to cancel all that because of the restrictions and the fact mm-hmm. that they closed us from going over there. Yeah. But we were really kind of looking forward to it. My kids have been there, uh, to, my oldest daughter's been to France twice and she's been to Greece and she's been to, um, Italy. France, Greece, Italy. Yeah, she loves it. She finally convinced us to go, and then, boom. <laughs> uh, so yeah. we're we, we're still going. We're still planning. We want to visit there. We want to visit Italy. We want to touch history. We we both love history, and we're mm-hmm. addicted to history. And we're addicted to watching in reliving some of these things that have taken place at least via the History Channel and National Geographic, which is fantastic, but to stand there and touch it and feel it and, Mm -hmm. you know, it just would be cool. That just blows me away to even think about it. Yeah. You suffer from anxiety. Mm -hmm. And um, how did that affect your travels when you were over there by yourself, especially?
1: Yeah, a lot, (laughs) put it simply. You know, at first my anxiety was really just, took a back seat because I was just so excited I could kind of override it. Then eventually it kind of started creeping in again as it tends to do. And it's just, you know, for me, there are a couple different ways people feel anxiety, right? There's, you know, there's social anxiety, which I have, There's generalized anxiety disorder, which is sort of just a sensation that something is wrong almost all the time, which I also have. And then there are panic attacks, which I have very rarely, but do have occasionally. So I'm kind of a fun mix of like your main three types of anxiety. But for me, when I have anxiety, it's a very physical sensation that like something is like really wrong. And I feel it like in my body and it feels like nausea, stomach pain, trouble breathing, It's a very physical sensation. It's almost like being in the early steps of an illness is like the, you know, the way that I can describe it. And it's not always accompanied by like racing thoughts or worry or paranoia. Sometimes anxiety can truly just be a physical sensation. And sometimes it can be both. And sometimes it can be just the racing thoughts. It's like really can be, you know, A, B, C, and D. And so it would be hard sometimes because I would get anxiety first thing in the morning when I woke up, I would just wake up with just this like pit in my stomach, just feeling dread for the day. And it's like, I wasn't sure what I was anxious about, but I just dreaded getting out of bed and getting started and starting to go through all the steps of things that could make me anxious. Like, oh no, now I have to go get breakfast and I'm going to have to talk to someone in a language that's... I don't speak very well, and it's just gonna be a mess, and he's gonna laugh at me, and I'm not gonna wanna eat my breakfast then. And, you know, I kind of would catastrophize a lot about how the day would go, and it made it really hard to sort of start my day. So it was sort of battling. I want to travel, I truly want to be out there experiencing all those things, but there's also a part of me that was almost like a physical subconscious part of me that was holding me back from doing a lot of those things. And, you know, sometimes the anxiety voice won, and sometimes I won, and I got to go out and do my things and realize that it wasn't so bad. But I definitely spent a number of days kind of incapacitated by my anxiety. Just, you know, it was like, this is a Netflix day, and like, yes, I'm in Rome, and, you know, yes, I could be, you know, seeing the Spanish Steps. But God damn it, I'm just gonna watch Netflix today because it's what my brain and body needs. And so, learning to be okay with doing that and giving myself those breaks was a really important part of traveling with anxiety, um, because you can run yourself totally ragged if you're traveling for five, six, seven months at a time.
0: What speaking of that, what what? Um, and this is on the along the same lines. What do you do for health care if you travel and you, you have lived there for so long?
1: Yeah, so I um, currently do not have American health insurance. Um, I have, um, now I have Bulgarian health insurance, but I would purchase travel insurance that was specifically made for like nomadic people, basically. So um, I would use World Nomads, which is like a travel insurance that has monthly plans. It's not very expensive. It's much cheaper than... Regular health insurance back in the states, and there's also another insurance called Safety Wing, and they also do like uh, monthly insurances. So you pay about a hundred bucks a month, but it covers like all sorts of medical things as well as like theft, trip cancellations, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of all encompassing. Yeah.
0: How did you learn to manage your anxiety while you while you traveled?
1: It's still an ongoing process. It's still something I'm learning, but. I guess just through just exposure therapy, repeated exposure, trial and error, and just getting out there and realizing that 95% of the time, I catastrophized something way too much and built it up in my head to be way worse than it was going to be. And 5% of the time I was right. And it was exactly that bad, but I survived and it was okay. And so sort of just like repeating that process just over and over and over again, you just sort of raise your threshold to anxiety. And overall, you just become a little more resilient. And, you know, you definitely still have your highs and lows. I've definitely had a couple meltdowns here and there. But overall, I think it's gotten a lot better and just through you know, repeated trial and error. Like there are some other things I've tried to sort of do to manage my anxiety, like meditation. And I should note as well that I'm on medication for my anxiety, which is extremely helpful for me. But overall, I've just found that anxiety is a little bit inevitable. But what isn't, what it what, yeah. I was trying to find a word for the opposite of inevitable and I couldn't find it. What isn't inevitable is uh, just hiding because of your anxiety. You don't have to do that. You can go out there and you can go out and do things, even if you're terrified of it. You can do it, and it's probably never as bad as you imagine.
0: Yeah, it's it's. Um, I say my some members of my family um, suffer from anxiety, and they manage it with medication, or with and meditation both. My wife mm-hmm. actually got off of her anxiety medication with meditation. That's great. Which is pretty cool. She's really you know, kind of enjoying that aspect mm-hmm. of it because it, yeah. it allows her and she's learned to uh, kind of take a meditation break. If she starts getting a little bit of uh, anxiety or panic attack of some type, she'll take a breather and meditate for a couple of minutes and get back to balance and it kind That's of works great. for her. Yeah. Cool.
1: Meditation is a little bit challenging for me because I also have a little bit of ADD. And so it's very physically painful for me to sit and try to meditate with my thoughts. If it's a very directed meditation, it's great. Like I have a real fear of flying. And so I'll listen to fear of flying meditations while I'm on the plane. And that helps tremendously because it's like very focused. But if it's just like, think about how calm you are. You're a stream you're a beacon of light. I'm like, Oh, my God, I want to move so badly. And then I imagine all these like itches and sensations and just like, I just want to move my whole body. I think there's a part of me that's very rebellious. And (laughs) that gets a little bit tricky with meditation.
0: (laughs) What if the stream rises? What if we have a flood? I need to move to to a higher ground.
1: And And then all my belongings are going to be destroyed by the flood. I won't get insurance
0: <laughs> unless you have the nomad insurance.
1: <laughs> Not sure that yeah. covers floods.
0: <laughs> that's that's kind of um, yeah. Everybody's journey with uh, with that is uh, unique to themselves. They all have a commonality, but they're also unique. And I think that uh, managing it is a very key point to enjoying life a little bit more. Mm-hmm. However, you manage it. So yeah, the people out there listening, if you know medication works for you, great. If meditation works for you, that's great too. Combination of both, great. Works out cool. You have a podcast.
1: I do. It's called I'm Anxious About. And um, every week we discuss a new topic that me and my friend Chris are anxious about. Sometimes we're both anxious about the topic. Sometimes one of us is a little more anxious about the other or about the topic than the other. And we try to switch it up. We try not to be like too you know, COVID doom and gloom, I'm anxious about the state of the world and collapse and blah, 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 we try to keep it kind of, uh, kind of light, kind of funny, but also serious at the same time. So we've covered topics like, you know, I'm anxious about going to a restaurant about, you know, how you feel when you get a menu, and there's too many things on it, and you get a little like anxious about making a choice. We've covered things such as public transportation and how awkward it can be sometimes on public transit making eye contact, worrying about delays, things like that. So we try to keep things kind of light and reflective of the everyday experiences of someone with anxiety. And our hope is that listeners will be like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one who was anxious about that. And we kind of hope to be those people who kind of can be like, nope, me too.
0: What was your idea for it? Why did you you come up with it?
1: So my friend Chris He and I met while we were traveling at his travel conference, but I was co-hosting his travel podcast while my friend was on maternity leave. Um, He runs the travel podcast uh, Rick Steves Over Brunch, where they review old Rick Steves episodes. And so while my friend was having a baby, I co-hosted a couple times and we were just having so much fun, but we were just talking about all the things that made us anxious on this topic for some reason. And then as we were finishing, um, as we were finishing recording the episode, I think it was on like Stockholm or Lisbon or something. Not, neither are cities that make me anxious, so I don't know why we were talking about anxiety <laughs> so much. But um, then uh, we were just like, we should really do a podcast about anxiety and just call it I'm anxious about and the, the the idea just pretty much came out as like a sentence and then we're like yeah okay let's do that and it was in the early days of quarantine and covid-19 and we just like ran with it got it set up in about a month and we've been releasing one episode a week ever since
0: that's and it's brilliant i've listened to it several episodes of it and it's uh, brilliant it's fun to listen to and it's you get to laugh a little bit and you get to learn a little bit and um, yeah it makes you feel good sometimes you guys say stuff that like i can relate to that that's pretty cool or i didn't even know about that thanks Do that's you, so good okay, to hear speaking about anxiety um and i might be backtracking just a little mm-hmm. bit but just a question is there a great language barrier between the traveling europe whether it be eastern mm-hmm. or western europe
1: yeah so eastern europe i tend to have a little bit More trouble with. Um, I don't speak very good Bulgarian. Um, Frankly, the language never had so much of an interest to me. So I've only really gained basic survival Bulgarian things like navigating, like taxis supermarkets, very basic stuff. And I have a very wide vocabulary of very basic words that I put together very creatively. But I really like uh, romance languages. So anytime I'm in a place that speaks a romance language, I'm usually okay. So I speak Spanish and Portuguese almost Fluently-ish, you know, fluent enough to like, you know, communicate and uh, and uh, you know, Americans when we get fluent, we tend to still not be one hundred percent fluent, but we're still so proud of ourselves anyway. Because I don't know, we are just a nation that is really struggles to learn languages. I think it's hard because there's not a lot of pressure to learn because most people will speak better English than you can ever hope to speak their language. But yeah, that's
0: yeah. interesting, I've got an Italian brother-in-law that. Mm-hmm when he came when he when he first came here um he came from rome so he spoke very little broken mm-hmm. english and um i learned italian from him way back when and he learned english so well mm-hmm. that you you almost wouldn't know except for the slight accent he's got yeah that he came from rome yeah you know and it was um it, friends of his came over and we moved into the same neighborhood and everything and and just about all of them, same thing. They, yeah. you know, they didn't speak it very well when they got here. When they got here, they speak English. And now you hardly can tell the difference between between that. They're not searching for words. They're not going, you know, come how do you say? Yeah. They're not, you know, it was pretty it's interesting, actually.
1: Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, language is all very so much in complexity. And, um, you know, teaching your brain to think a different way in real time is extremely difficult. And I think English in some ways is an easier language to learn than others because like our verbs are so much simpler. We don't have genders. Our spelling is a mess. But like speaking wise, it's a relatively simple language structurally, whereas Bulgarian is like one of the, you know, Bulgarian's a bit crazy where like you know, a noun is different depending on what's happening to the noun. So not only do you have to conjugate your verbs, you got to conjugate your nouns. And then you also oh. got to add an article to your noun at the end of it, but then it changes depending on the gender. And this is why I've only stuck to, you know, putting my 500 words together in various little, little, uh, mosaics. But I don't cool? blame you. It's worked surprisingly well for, uh, for what I have to What I have to say, I imagined I'd live here and I'd be speaking Bulgarian really well. And that has not panned out exactly the way I hoped. Uh, I think my brain can really only handle romance languages.
0: (laughs) I understand. And even now, even now, those romance languages like French and um, Italian, uh, those of you who I'm familiar with, French and Italian, they still have a feminine in a masculine. Yeah. So you say this oh, way yeah. with the feminine, this way with the masculine, this way with friends, this way with family. Mm-hmm. So they've got their little idiosyncrasies as well. Oh, for but, sure. But not quite as much. So do you and when I ask this question, I'm just just curious, mm-hmm. did you get treated any differently for being yeah. an American? Um,
1: I don't know. I'm sure, yes. You know, people are mostly curious about what I'm doing here. Um, because it's not the typical story. The typical story is that Bulgarians leave uh, Bulgaria to come to America, or to other parts of Europe. Uh, It's one of the fastest depleting countries um, in the EU. Um, All the young people are leaving Bulgaria because now they have EU passports and can study where there's a lot more opportunity. So it's not super common for um, Westerners to relocate to Bulgaria. So like when they hear I'm American, they're like, whoa. And then when they hear that my husband is Brazilian, they're like, what? (laughs) You know, it just blows their mind. And um, so, you know, I definitely get treated with kind of more like curiosity than anything else. I don't, I wouldn't say I get treated much better or worse than um, anyone else. I think it's pretty much... People do sometimes get frustrated with you for not speaking the language, but you know, at the end of the day, you only speak what you can speak. So you do your best with what you have and exactly. you just got to make make the best of whatever situation you're in.
0: Exactly. I that's I agree with that. If somebody wanted to find you on uh, on your blogs, where would they find you?
1: Uh, so you can find me on eternalarrival.com if you just want to see some uh, general travel tips, and some outdoor content about the U.S. And you can find me. I also have some Europe stuff on there if you're planning for the future. If you are, are curious about Bulgaria or the Balkans and want to know more about this area of the world, you can go onto SofiaAdventures.com. Or if you're based in California and want to explore your home state a bit, I have a new site. Not too many articles up there yet, but I'm working on it um, every day it's californiacrossroads.com and my podcast like we mentioned is i'm anxious about and yes i have way too many projects i need to get some more sleep
0: <laughs> why well, get sleep when there's so much to do
1: exactly sleep when you're dead right
0: exactly i'm with you you can ask my wife she she'll be glad to validate that <laughs> i don't have as many projects as you but trust me it's she keeps saying you're retired remember <laughs> you're you're retired i went, Yeah, but that just gives me more time to do more things.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't understand really how to relax for more than a day. So I don't know what I would do in retirement other than like work on things that I thought were cool.
0: You know, when we do go someplace, like we go to Maui. So when we go to Maui, she wants to sit on the beach and she can't understand why I want to do all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. She's like, can you just come sit on the beach? So I'll go sit on the beach with her for about 20 minutes and then I'll say, okay, you ready to do something else? And she's like, no.
1: (laughs) I'm the same as you.
0: (laughs) On the beach.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm the same as you. I have like a time limit and that's pretty much like as soon as the first coat of SPF wears off, I want off that beach. I don't want to reapply and commit to sitting out all day. I want to start doing other things.
0: (laughs) Exactly. That's what you're there for, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I always ask this at the end of my podcast. So I'm going to ask you, do you have any words of wisdom?
1: Uh, do what scares you, and don't let what you tell yourself about yourself hold you back. Because those are just thoughts, and you can make new ones.
0: Outstanding! I like those words of wisdom.
1: Thank you I'm not on the but. Any- but I think that was fun actually.
0: Hey, it it worked. It's it's very profound. I want to thank you very much for sharing your journey with me.
1: Thank you. It's been a lot of fun sharing it with you and joining you on the podcast and getting to know you. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Same here. I really um, wish you well in Bulgaria. I hope things continue to evolve for you there and that uh, you get to travel more. And I've started reading your blog. So everybody that's out there listening, you need to go visit this blog. It's an outstanding, brilliantly put together suitcase full of uh, valuable insight tips tricks and stories
1: thank you so much I'm glad I'm glad you enjoy hopefully I can help you plan a trip when you uh, finally get to do that trip to Europe
0: soon as they open the borders mm-hmm. uh, I will be absolutely back out, in-
1: sleeping in line <laughs> like you're waiting for an iPhone
0: <laughs> yes just, just nothing we're going to spend any more than about 20 or 30 minutes on the beach we're good <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Allison, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com.
0: That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com